0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our latest episode uh, here at New Books Network on the Diplomatic History Channel. My name is Grant Gollub, and I will be your host. Uh, Today, I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Hunt um, to discuss his new book. Uh, He is an assistant professor of strategy at the U.S. Air War College. He was previously a lecturer in modern global history at the University of Southampton in England. Uh, He has held fellowships at Harvard, Emory, the Rand Corporation, and Stanford. He's also the co-editor of an excellent uh, volume called The Reagan Moment, America and the World in the 1980s. And he has his PhD from the University of Texas um, at Austin. The title of his book, which we'll be talking about today, um, which is coming out... In November 2022, Uh, it's called the Nuclear Club: How America and the World Police the Atom from Hiroshima to Vietnam. So, very topical uh, conversation right now with everything that's going on in international politics. So, John, thanks for so thanks so much for coming on the uh, on the podcast. Well, Grant, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure to speak to you to speak to the audience of the
0: uh, the diplomatic history channel as well. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. So why don't we dive right in? I was wondering if you could start us off by telling me and telling our listeners really what the book is all about, what its main arguments are, um, and how, uh, you sort of came about coming to this topic.
1: Absolutely. I I might actually take those questions in reverse order. Uh, in part because I think the the motivation behind the book explains to some extent the the framework, the scope, and the hypothesis that originally animated it, and eventually the argument that hypothesis uh, gradually grew into. So, uh, you know, I started my PhD program in 2006 uh, in the wake and the sort of continuing ramifications of The American War of Choice in Iraq, uh, a war that was justified with reference to uh, claims uh, based on what proved to be faulty intelligence that Saddam Hussein's regime was continuing to pursue uh, weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons in particular. And having watched this unfold across my undergraduate years and continuing into uh, my PhD program, I... I found myself, you know, as as we all do, as young PhD students, trying to find some some topic that blends both originality and, and some, you know, hopefully larger audience. You know, wondering why it was that this had become normal or at least uh, conceivable, explicable, and, and ultimately um, the, the course that events took that the United States could intervene half the world away in the name of maintaining nuclear peace. So. As this began to solidify in my mind's eye, and I thought, you know, a little more broadly about how we got from here to there, I was able to take advantage of the proximity at the University of Texas at Austin of the uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the LBJ Presidential Library and Archive and uh notice I, I suppose to my delight that the nuclear Nonproliferation treaty was negotiated almost in, not entirely but close to entirely you know it's, it's a story that i do trace back to 1958 uh, first proposal by uh, an irish foreign minister frank aiken in fact uh, more about that momentarily uh, but it, it's one that really had i think it's it's sort of it's in game in the johnson administration and you know, kind of surveying the existing literature as we are all encouraged to do as we start to build out our our dissertation, our doctoral dissertation research programs. uh, I was struck by this coincidence, perhaps more than coincidence, that the Non-Proliferation Treaty was negotiated at the same time that the United States uh, was Americanizing and then escalating its war in Southeast Asia. And so uh, over the course of, you know, in my remaining years in my doctoral program, uh, visiting archives across the United States, in Europe, uh, Latin America, I began to develop, I think, uh, what I hoped was an original interpretation of why it was that the United States, with the approval of much of the international community, not all, but but certainly a critical mass of the international community, it itse- uh, to itself the authority to intervene in the name of nuclear nonproliferation. So the book, uh the scope of the book is trying to understand the origins of of what scholars and practitioners called the global nuclear nonproliferation regime. Uh, it was a story that I, I knew sort of where I wanted to end. I wanted to take it through the opening for signature and entry into force of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. But I also wanted to tell that story as kind of the latest in a sequence of, of nuclear treaties that were negotiated and opened for signature in the 1960s. So the first of these is the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which prohibits nuclear testing uh, in the atmosphere, under water, and in outer space. And then following that, the Latin American Nuclear Weapon Free Zone, also known as the Treaty of Tlatelolco which was finalized in the midst of this NPT endgame. game uh, February of 1967, but which was negotiated uh, exclusively by Latin American delegates. So uh, the scope of the book is, is you know, really focused on, on these three treaties, understanding them uh, in the midst of a number of kind of interlocking con- contexts. And I think that will probably get me to, you know, both the main argument of the book as well as some of the subsidiary claims. So... Uh, the main argument is, in essence, that uh, scholars and I think also, you know, conventional wisdom holds that the invention of nuclear weapons, the first use of these uh, these weapons of of mass destruction against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, gave rise to a, a new condition, a qualitative difference in international security affairs: the nuclear revolution. And that this revolution brought into being what John Lewis Gaddis has dubbed the long peace, the non-event of great power conflict since the Second World War, Uh, put differently, the non-occurrence of a Third World War. Uh, And yet historians, political scientists, and many others have noted (laughs) that this long peace in Europe was not necessarily experienced uh, likewise in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, areas of the world that had been uh, transformed by decolonization, uh, political maps that had been inherited from colonial authorities, uh, seldom corresponding neatly to tribal, ethnic, religious affiliations on the ground. And that this long piece, if it were to have been a historical subject, uh, historians were trying to understand how it related to these proxy wars, civil conflicts, and limited wars, including uh, America's war in Vietnam uh, during the same time period. And so in essence, I, I hope this that this book makes the compelling argument that in order to understand the nuclear revolution and its implications, we also have to understand what I describe as a nuclear counter-revolution by powerful states, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union foremost among them to take what was a, let's say, status quo of nuclear anarchy, uh, the lack of global rules, let alone uh, enforcement mechanisms, and its replacement in time with the global nuclear nonproliferation regime, which helped to institutionalize the predominant position of nuclear weapon states, but the Soviet Union and above all the United States um, uh, within this, this global order
0: so going back to to 1945 and, and the first or the only atomic bombings um, that have ever occurred thankfully uh, when the u.S drops two atomic devices on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki which helps end World War II uh, against Japan I was wondering if you could talk about what the global reaction uh, to the bombings is and how this sort of, frames early attempts to understand what this new weapon is and its impact uh not only on warfare but also on uh global politics.
1: Yeah it's it's a great question and it's one that I struggled. I think when I when I wrote the the first chapter, which covers this period from 1945 to 1955. Although you know I really go back to the kind of origins of uh, transnational nuclear nuclear physics and um, quantum theory of the atom uh, through the, Ma- the Manhattan Project onto Hiroshima Nagasaki and eventually the Truman and Eisenhower administrations. Uh, you know, to me the the <clears throat> the narratives that are told in the wake of the bombings are just as significant as the way in which the bombs themselves were manufactured. And what I I, you know the schema that I developed I, I hopefully to my satisfaction maybe to my readers is that I found there were there were three main threads in this fabric of nuclear discourse uh, in the wake of the bombings and through the very early Cold War uh, the first of these was uh, humanitarian uh, it came out very much from journalists uh, like John Hershey uh, whose uh, reporting in The New Yorker eventually serialized and then turned into a, a standalone, uh, um, uh, work of nonfiction, uh, Hiroshima, uh, certainly uh, fit within this 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 mode of response, but also the activities and the investigations of the uh, representatives of the International Committee of the Red Cross, who of course uh, are charged by statute with superintending the Geneva Conventions. And so, you know, this this is, I think, a a dimension a uh, you know the humanitarian response has been explored by a, a couple of scholars previously. Sean Malloy has a great book on Henry Stimson and the way in which he viewed uh, this new weapon through a humanitarian prism. Uh, also, Andrew Rotter's, uh book on uh, Hiroshima uh, makes quite a bit about you know fears of this. Uh, you know, very obvious analogy between at the time uh, nuclear weapons and uh, their radiological effects and chemical weapons, which of course had already been or at least the use of which had been illegalized by the 1925 Geneva protocol. Uh, so, you know, for me, this humanitarian response, it's, it's been explored uh, uh, by historians over the past 10 or 15 years. But it one it's one that I, I don't think had been connected yet to what would eventually become this presiding global nuclear order. So this is a thread that I i trace throughout the book, uh, the way in which it, in particular kind of paternal tropes of a kind of father protector, uh, uh, you know, shielding the world's uh, mothers and children from uh, radi- uh, from nuclear fallout uh, was kind of co-opted, especially by American presidents, uh, somewhat Eisenhower, but especially uh, Kennedy and then Johnson, in order to, as I argue, kind of legitimate the emerging imperial presidency of, of the 1960s. Uh, the second thread of responses uh, very much viewed nuclear weapons more through you know what we. Uh, scholars and security students of of security affairs would call uh, deterrence theory. And so it's a a fairly well-worn story. It's one that I recapitulate, uh, but place in kind of tighter dialogue with these uh, humanitarian responses. And then last but not least, the technocratic, uh, the uh, move towards some kind of international institutions, global governance uh, to try to bring some modicum of control over this fearsome new we- weapon system. And this is probably best uh, illustrated by J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, his, his efforts, what would eventually become the Baruch plan to create an uh, international atomic energy agency to, to control fissile materials like uranium and plutonium.
0: So let's unpack the, the Baruch plan a little bit, because this is a very early um, and I think well-known effort to students of um, the development of nuclear regimes and trying to control it's some semblance of control of international atomic energy. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about what that plan was, how it would go about um, actually trying to control... Uh, atomic energy and why it ultimately failed to gain traction within the international community.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a plan that comes out, you know, pretty much in the immediate wake of the bombings as the international community. But I think also the U S government is trying to, trying to determine, you know, what to make of these things, uh, trying to answer some, some fairly fundamental questions, uh, not least of which is, you know, how difficult are these things to produce? Uh, this is something that, uh, you know, George Orwell also latches on to uh, he writes a, an article in The Observer, um, um, you and the atomic bomb basically arguing, in fact, only the most powerful states in the world have the means to, uh, you know, build these arsenals. And as a result, uh, you know, it's in, in many ways, this this article for The Observer is a first draft almost of the, the setting for 1984, the idea of. Of, of three sort of monstrous super states uh, uh, by means of these nuclear means of retaliation of uh, really protecting a kind of oligarchic world order. Um, and it's one that, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a theme that I go back to on a couple of occasions, um, you know, asking whether the the nuclear club is in some ways uh, that we inherited uh, from the cold wars in some ways, uh, I, I suppose, a manifestation or a, a, res- a um uh, living embodiment of, of George Orwell's uh, warnings. Uh, for the U.S. government, on the other hand, you know they're they're very concerned not only with the Soviet Union potentially uh, amassing the fissile materials necessary, the expertise and wherewithal, uh, but even allies like the United Kingdom, uh, with which uh, uh, you know, who scientists had had collaborated quite closely with with American and, and indeed sort of uh, European scientists. Uh, many of the scientists, of course. Uh, flee uh, uh, fascist and Nazi, um, uh, you know, sort of the squads uh, in the in the run up to what would become the Holocaust. Many of these scientists are, are Jewish or married to uh, 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 to Jewish, uh, Jewish spouses. So uh, the Brueck plan and the, preceding that, the Atreus and Lilienthal plan is an effort, especially by I think you know scientists within the Manhattan Project, led by J. Robert Oppenheimer to, you know, try to not necessarily put the genie back in the bottle, but to internationalize uh, atomic research, uh, the ownership of things like uranium mines, uh, and to try to find some foolproof manner of uh, ensuring or nipping a nuclear arms race in the butt. And uh, ultimately, it's it's undone by, you know, uh, for a couple of reasons, the first of which was you know they just sort of misestimated. You know, Oppenheimer believes there's really a finite amount of fissile materials, in particular uranium and thorium uh, in the world and that it shouldn't be that hard to sort of uh, identify them and, and take control of them when in fact there's, there's far more uranium out there than they necessarily understood and much of it was, was in the hands of, of what would become communist uh, communist powers. Uh, The second is that the U.S. government, as the Cold War, you know, relations between Washington and Moscow start to freeze, is just less and less interested in international cooperation. So uh, uh, Baruch is uh, Bernard Baruch, who's this New York financier, a Democratic Party sort of fixer um, and large uh, fundraiser as well, uh, is brought in to sort of negotiate this on the sidelines of the United Nations, you know, the very new United Nations. And he adds this condition, which is an essentially... Any country that's found in violation of, uh, you know, this agreement uh, would uh, be subject immediately subject to sanctions and even military uh, force. And the Soviets, which had fought tooth and nail to include uh, vetoes for the permanent members of the UN Security Council, which includes, of course, uh, themselves, the United States, France, Great Britain, and what is at the time the Republic of China, uh, it has at, absolutely no interest <laughs> in. Uh, putting themselves under the gun. I mean, they've already s- launched their own military nuclear program. They've secreted uh, blueprints out of Los Alamos via Klaus Fuchs. So, you know, in essence, Baruch is asking them to to justify their own, you know, military intervention against themselves. Uh, so, for you know, so it's kind of dead on arrival. The they negotiated over the course of uh, uh, you know almost a year, but it. It really doesn't go anywhere. But what's interesting is is Andrei Gromyko has this counterproposal. This is the Soviet foreign minister. And he says, why don't we just do the same thing that we did with chemical weapons? So we'll have a sort of Geneva Protocol for nuclear weapons, uh, the Geneva Protocol, but sort of even souped up. So the Geneva Protocol says, you know, you can't use these things. Technically, you can can possess them, but you can't use them. Uh, But the logic of deterrence that's, you know, starting to... Uh, elaborated by individuals like Bernard Brody would note that, you know, having, possessing the nuclear weapons is more important than using them. The point and, you know, the sort of intellectual superstructure that's being built is just, you know, these are weapons of terror. And so they're intended to induce in the mind of your adversary, the fear, right, uh, to quote Dr. Strangelove. And so it's not enough to have a ban on on using them. Because they're, they're, they're in many ways used even when they're not being used in order to uh, you know, strike terror into the heart of your opponent. And so the Grumico plan doesn't really go that far either. But I argue in, in many ways, both the Grumico plan and the Baruch plan, sort of elements of both find their way into the non regime, both through the limited test ban treaty and the non treaty. And, you know, with kind of perverse effects, I mean, the the regulatory apparatus of the Baruch Plan we see in the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is sort of tasked by the MPT to develop the actual, you know, to actually implement uh, these controls over fissile materials, uh, but also the humanitarian dimension where there's a kind of moralism, you uh, imbued, you know, imbued in the non-proliferation treaty, this distinction, um, qualitative distinction, normative distinction between conventional and, and nuclear war and, and threats of war, uh, which, uh, you know, ultimately justifies preventive war, uh, the book argues.
0: So, after the, the failure of both the Baruch Plan and the Grameko Plan to actually come to some sort of agreement on how to control international atomic energy, the, these early efforts kind of flounder. How does Washington react? But it will actually, I should back up a little bit. But at the same time, Washington can sort of take a little comfort in knowing that it, at the time they have this atomic monopoly, no other country has a nuclear weapons arsenal. They know that countries are trying to develop them, but it, they think that this is right some some time off in the distance. And so this is why when the Soviets uh, successfully detonated an atomic device in August 1949, it really comes to somewhat of a shock to American policymakers because they had suspected this would happen in the early 1950s. So how does Washington's reaction reaction to um, the successful detonation of an atomic device by the Soviets, and then of course by the British in 1952, obviously a very different kind of country in relation to the United States, but still getting an atomic device uh, all the same. How How does Washington's reaction impact, if it does at all, efforts to try and restart maybe some sort of efforts at trying to control the spread of, of nuclear weapons?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a great book on the, on not just the Soviet program, but the first Soviet test um, in, in 1949. And the, the sort of, you know, I'm not going to say complete and utter, but, but certainly the surprise that engendered in, in the U.S. national security state. You know, fairly new national security state. We're only a couple of years past the National Security Act of 1947, which creates sort of the modern Pentagon, the Central Intelligence Agency, as well. And they, you know, they, there's a lot of assumptions that go into it that uh, downplay, discount the capabilities of, of Soviet scientists, um, and the, the amount of fissile materials, uh, you know, uranium in particular, that the Soviets would be able to get their hands on, and so. You know, there's there's this process in kind of the first the first ten years of the nuclear age where the United States is is trying to first of all make sense of a world in which it has a nuclear monopoly, which seems to give it considerable leverage and the initiative to deal with all these new kind of Cold War crises. Then all of a sudden, you you enter into a new uh, paradigm of uh, you know nuclear superiority still, but nonetheless. Uh, increasingly bipolar nuclear world. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a funny thing that, you know, proliferation, you could argue, begins with the Soviet Union uh, because the United States is, is sort of that, that, that original, right? It's the, it's the OG member of the, of the nuclear club. And so it's really the only state that, that ever enjoys this kind of, you know, we talk about, unipo- you know, the unipolar moment in um, the post-Cold War world, but there's kind of a bit of a unipolar moment uh, in those four years before the Soviets test their first device. It, fortunately for the United States, I think when they look across at kind of nuclear threats in the early Cold War, they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we use these things? How usable are they? Eisenhower is playing around with massive retaliation, uh, all this rhetoric about nuclear weapons being just like a bullet, uh, that you would use them, you know, fairly early in a conventional um, conflict. And, there, you know, a whole kind of, uh, a lot, a lot of thought that's going on in a number of different spaces from the White House to Rand Corporation to uh, physics departments and, and, you know, around the country and around the world trying to make sense of this all. And fortunately for the United States, most of the countries most capable of, of, of acquiring a nuclear weapon on their own, uh, you know, just using using their own resources are close allies. So While the United States is not thrilled at the notion of the United Kingdom or France uh, building nuclear weapons, and they try to discourage both, uh, it's there's not nearly the same sense of urgency uh, in in the 1950s. And I think, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower, he thinks these things are monstrous. He kind of you know it can seem a bit cavalier about making nuclear threats, but he kind of thinks that you know that's how you're credible. You 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 can't you know. It's always this sort of schizophrenia when it comes to to U.S. declaratory nuclear policy, where you have to talk talk tough, right? But at the end of the day, almost nearly every president, when they're briefed on uh, you know the single integrated operating plan, the, the basically the nuclear war plans by uh, Stratcom, they, you know they think they they think it's the most monstrous thing they've ever heard. Right. And so there, there's this kind of like, there's strong schizophrenia, but for the early proliferators, once you get past the Soviet union, it's like, it's really more about alliance relations and about the integrity of NATO and the place of of a broken Germany within NATO that drives a lot of, uh, you know, kind of ambivalence towards the British and the French programs. Um, But, and it's ultimately once, the People's Republic of China, right, a revolutionary non-white power uh, starts to inch closer and closer to its own nuclear weapons capability that subsequent American administrations, uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, start to think much more proactively about taking non-proliferation from a kind of passive non-proliferation where like we don't want to go out of our way to help others build, uh, you know, nuclear arsenals uh, to an active non-proliferation where they, they are trying to understand and address what are the various tools, the various instruments of national power that can be wielded
0: to inhibit uh, new nuclear weapon states. So, so what are some of those things that they decide to come up with starting with the with the Kennedy administration in 1961? What are some of the, the tools and points of leverage that American policymakers try and wield to prevent countries like China, which of course does eventually get a nuclear device in 1964, but to try and prevent countries who are interested in developing their own atomic programs? What sort of tools and mechanisms are Are they exploring to try and actively prevent nuclear proliferation?
1: Yeah. And I think I might say not just prevent, but to manage nuclear proliferation. And, you know, certainly I think the Kennedy and the Johnson administration pretty quickly, uh, you know, there's a lot of shared personnel between these two administrations. So there's a fair amount of institutional continuity between JFK and LBJ. And, you know, there's sort of more maximalist positions. So, you know, Walt Rostow, he comes in as Deputy National Security Advisor for JFK. He doesn't last a long time because he's just like, you know, he's sort of um, more Catholic than the Pope about the Cold War. And so he's writing these, you know, kind of audacious grand plans for a, um, you know, going beyond containment for a kind of like messianic liberal internationalism, he calls it. Uh, common law for the Cold War. And one of the things that really, uh, you know, frustrates him is arms sales. And so he's frustrated by Soviet and Chinese arms sales, you know, particularly places like Cuba, but also uh, Indochina, Southeast Asia. And he kind of groups nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation sort of in that same basket. And so he, you know, he's quite maximalist in what he's willing to do. And over the course of the Kennedy and then Johnson administrations, what you'll see is that there's a re- really kind of like an array of tools that they have, that they identify, and that these tools correspond with slightly different conceptions of what America's role in the world should be. And I think, you know, to kind of get at this, you know, security scholars tend to focus on, okay, what what security threat do nuclear weapons pose, right? And that's going to determine the, the behavior, the nonproliferation policies of, say, a regional power or superpower like the United States. When in fact, a a lot of this is about the United States trying to find a way of blending might and right in a very turbulent moment in the Cold War, right? And, you know, so just to kind of list a few of the things going on, uh, when Kennedy comes into office, uh, you know, across the 1960s, uh, just a number of territorial disputes in the Middle East over Taiwan, Cuba, of course. Um, you know, you're eventually going to have, uh, territorial conflicts between China and India, India and Pakistan. Uh, of course, the 1967, uh, six Day war, uh, South Africa is not exactly, you know, their neighbors are not exactly happy with South Africa's policies, uh, in and around Southwest Africa. And so there's just all these sort of cold war territorial disputes, which, date back not just to the US Soviet kind of ideological competition but also to and just the hangover from colonialism the these kind of in many cases almost nonsensical uh, you know political borders that were laid down and are just increasingly uh, urgent as decolonization picks up pace across the 1960s. What's more, decolonization is is changing the United Nations General Assembly. It's going from, you know, a General Assembly that's fairly responsive to to U.S. preferences to one that is that is more and more dominated by the Third World. I think there are 32 African states and 24 Latin American states in the General Assembly by the end of the decade, by the time the non-proliferation treaty is being negotiated. So that's that's kind of changing the art of the possible for uh, global parliamentary diplomacy. So, you know, you see a, a number of different tools that are identified for dealing with Non, you know, with the proliferation of, of nuclear weapons in new states. And these range from discussion of preventive strikes against Chinese nuclear facilities by the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. I, you know, I, I sort of downplay these somewhat. Uh, they always knew they couldn't do it without Soviet acquiescence. And I, from what I can tell, I don't think there was, there was a lot of confidence that they were going to receive, receive that approval Uh, despite the Sino-Soviet split, which is a whole, you know, another thing that's going on in the 1960s, this wedge between, uh, you know, Mao Zedong and first Khrushchev and then Kosygin and Brezhnev over like who really leads the communist world? Is it a sort of non-white revolutionary power out of Beijing? Or is it this sort of, I don't know, European, crusty, increasingly conservative uh, communist party of the Soviet Union? So... Uh, the the kind of the more kinetic options I see as as not you know really like preventive war. There is discussion, but I I never see it going that far. Even Curtis Lemay, right the um, uh, who becomes sort of the chief of the Air Force, who's about as gung ho as you get for U.S. military officers, is looks at the plans and is like, so you want us to strike targets in in like near modern day Shenyang, right, like. These are probably going to be one-way flights, and we really can't guarantee you that we can take out these facilities. Like, it's just a really tough problem, let alone getting Soviet authorization for it. Uh, so, what they end up, I think, relying more on is, is first of all, uh, you know, external balancing with allies, and in particular, reassuring allies who are going to be. Uh, most affected by, say, a Chinese nuclear weapon program, but also a prospective German or Japanese nuclear weapon program, right? Like we're, we're less than 25 years past the Second World War for many US allies, um, you know, smaller, you know, middle and, and small powers. Germany and Japan still represent a sort of latent threat to them. And the idea of a nuclear armed Germany or a nuclear armed Japan is, is, you know, is fearsome. Uh, So alliances are going to be a big part of it. Another part of it is just kind of the example that the the United States sets itself with its own nuclear posture. So Robert and McNamara will talk a lot about, uh, you know, no cities doctrine, counterforce, trying to reassure Europeans anxious uh, as this U.S. nuclear monopoly has gone from superiority to what looks like parity, certainly by the 1970s. Uh, and then international negotiations and, and treaties. And I think, uh, you know, ultimately that treaty making leg of this non-proliferation portfolio is going to prove uh, the the most productive uh, and I think ultimately one of the most significant. Uh, the way in which the United States evolves its alliance relationships in the nuclear domain with allies, uh, both in, in Asia as well as in Western Europe, is is we... We're living with those those institutions today, uh, but the treaties as well uh, we we live with too, and so I, I I think that's part of the reason I focus on them so much.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think that is a good time to really start unpacking those. So, but I think it's it's good to start with. I mean, I think you've been kind of touching on it uh, in your previous answer, but what really becomes the hinge moment? in the nuclear arms race, in sort of these um, – in nuclear proliferation where the great powers or the nuclear armed powers start coming together to say we need to really create institutional frameworks that are going to control and manage nuclear proliferation and then really try and actively um, encourage non-proliferation? Where does that shift really start to develop?
1: Yeah, so I think I would actually – you know. I'm always a little hesitant for, with hinge moment moments. I think if you you know, put a nuclear weapon to my head, uh, I think I'd probably still say the Cuban Missile Crisis, although it's important to remember that there was a simultaneous uh, Sino-Indian border war that, that same, those same two or three weeks. And so less that particular event than you know, those, those very anxious weeks in October and November of 1962. But I would actually go back a little bit because, you know, part of the, the argument that I make is the nuclear nonproliferation regime is not just constructed by great powers and that there is a level of consensus. And we can sort of, I, I think, uh, can have a very productive debate about the degree of consensus versus coercion and the creation of this global nuclear order. But when you go back to the beginning, right, the first proposal comes out of Ireland, which is by no means a great power, which is, you know, has so many like really unique and telling characteristics, right? So it is European, it sees its governmental approach as descendant of the Enlightenment, although it also looks back to sort of Irish national national history as well. It's a post-colonial state, right? It has emerged from the British Empire, like many of the other decolonized nations that are joining the United Nations General Assembly. It's close to the United States, in part because there is a large Irish diaspora, which includes eventually the youngest American president, John F. Kennedy. Um, And it is deeply invested in international institutions, the United Nations General Assembly, uh, above all. So, uh, you know, I I take this story back, and I think this is something that is unique to this book, uh, and, and do a kind of like a deep dive. Where did this? first proposal for for nuclear restraint, it was called at the time, a a nuclear restriction. Uh, Today, it's called the Iris Resolution. Where does it emerge from? And it's this moment in the summer of 1958, where, you know, it's in the Cold War, it's like, you never get like one crisis, it's always multiple simultaneous crises, where you have a crisis in you know, essentially, the, the Persian Gulf, eventually, an American and British intervention in Lebanon and Jordan, respectively. And then weeks later, you have a nuclear crisis in the Taiwan Straits. It's the second, uh, the Taiwan Strait, the the second nuclear crisis. The first was in 1955. Mao Zedong uh, orders the PLA to shell these sort of offshore islands, which are disputed between Ed and the Republic of China on Taiwan. Uh, Eisenhower dispatches the largest armada the world has ever seen. Um, you know, two full aircraft carrier groups uh, to just sail through the Taiwan Strait, something that we probably wouldn't dare to do today. And the world, as it's looking on, is, is kind of saying, wow, this combination of, you know, the balance of terror, the nuclear brinksmanship between the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, you know, Khrushchev feels moved, even though Mao had given him no warning about this crisis, and you can even date the origins of the Sino-Soviet split to to that, you know, that same summer of 1958. Um, you know, some scholars have, um, you know, he still feels moved to, to say, hey, so we you know, there is a there are there's a nuclear umbrella, Soviet nuclear umbrella over the People's Republic of China. Uh, likewise concerns. What, what's going to happen in the Middle East if these territorial disputes get nuclearized? And so Frank Aiken, who had just made this proposal for what he called areas of law, trying to kind of bring UN jurisdiction to, you know, the, these areas of uh, post-colonial territorial disputes. There's a certain amount of paternalism there towards what we would now, you know, at the time was dubbed the third world. But he, he nonetheless extracts one element of that areas of law proposal. Right. And it's important to note this was a proposal to expand the writ of the UN Charter. And he takes out the denuclearization part and says, why don't the nuclear weapon states pledge not to spread these things around, not to give them to anybody who doesn't already have them. And uh, simultaneously, states without nuclear weapons would promise not to acquire them. So more or less frees the status quo. And he makes an argument on a couple of grounds. The, The first is, you know, the combination of these territorial disputes and the Cold War nuclear arms race is the surest way to Armageddon. Secondly, if you want to achieve general and complete disarmament, let alone nuclear disarmament, it's going to get increasingly difficult as the nuclear club gets larger and larger. So if we keep it contained within a select group, there's some prospect maybe within our lifetimes, we'll be able to get, you know, do away with these things. Uh, In addition, he thinks this is the way to keep the cold war out of the third world which it's already clear in the late 1950s. There's a certain, there's a certain amount of stability perhaps in Europe, but it, it's clear the superpowers are sort of angling for the hearts and minds of, of the third world, and this is going to drag them into terri- territorial disputes that could then ramify into a global uh, confrontation. Up fourth, he's worried about terrorist groups. And you know what? He has good reason to. He was a member of the Irish Revolutionary Army. <laughs> That's how how he entered into, you know, eventually uh, Sinn Féin and Irish government. He goes respectable. Uh, but, you know, he has a checkered past. And so I think he speaks from experience that these subnational groups, um, whether guerrillas or terrorist organizations, you know, one man's terrorists and all that, uh, could in time acquire these these weapons. And and then and then last I think just the concern that you can never be sure that a new nuclear power will be responsible, Um, and and this is where like there is a certain racialized dimension to this. Uh, I you know Aiken, it's sort of it's 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 there. Although I think it's it's a little more implicit. Uh, But in the case of the United States, right, you have you have some language uh, about especially the People's Republic of China uh but then you know um i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna blank now fulbright william fulbright right when he when they're discussing the the non-proliferation treaty whether they're going to ratify it in 68. um you know he he makes a comment like what we're afraid of are these nuclear pygmies right which is i mean it doesn't get more more racialized and that's probably putting it kindly um this was the the democratic senator from arkansas after all so uh I, I see that as really like the founding moment. I think it connects it to sort of larger stories and, you know, post-1945 history to colonization, the United Nations, uh, territorial disputes, and of course the Cold War. Um, but it's one that, you know, it's not just the the great powers who are worried about this. Uh, and eventually over the course of a couple of years, Aiken convinces, um, you know, enough Delegations in the United Nations General Assembly, but most of all, the Soviet Union and the United States, that a nuclear nonproliferation treaty would, at the very least, not be injure you know would not injure uh, their their national interest, and so I that's kind of where I, I start that story.
0: Mm. So how does how do all of these things you know these early efforts at trying to create nuclear restraint, and and then all of these. Overlapping crises and and shifts in in the Cold War and sort of the global balance of power and international politics. How does all of this sort of come together in the in the formation of the Moscow Treaty or the Limited Test Ban Treaty, um, which is firmly negotiated in nineteen sixty two and sixty
1: three? Yeah, and this is where you know the Cuban Missile Crisis definitely plays a role. I think sort of ironically, right, the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the conventional historiography, like this is the kind of come, you know, quote unquote, come to Jesus moment. Walk to the walk to the brink of global destruction, and and Kennedy and Khrushchev, uh, you know, turn back and 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 decide to embark upon a course of nuclear sanity instead of insanity. And you know, I uh, yes, I, there there is truth there. I think there's also domestic political reasons that both Khrushchev and Kennedy. Uh, see a need to sort of consolidate themselves as, as leaders after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy comes out a lot better. You know, we often forget the Cuban Missile Crisis takes place like in the midst of a midterm election. Uh, uh, you know, Khrushchev, he, he's ultimately fatally injured by this uh, as far as his control of, of the, um, you know, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Politburo, he's going to be ousted. Uh, actually the same day that China tests its first nuclear weapon, October 16th, 1964. Uh, one of those stranger than fiction, um, you know, uh, coincidences. And, you know, for both of them, what's striking when you kind of really dive into the material, sure, Cuban Missile Crisis, wanting to signal, I think, to domestic and international audiences that they were these were statesmen, right? They were capable of uh, steering... The helm of state in a responsible manner, away from you know these these kind of nuclear whirlpools and towards some kind of common safe destination. But you know when you look at the at the documents, whether in the Kennedy Library, uh, you know what we know from uh, uh, you know uh, uh, you know Russian language doc- documents from the Soviet Foreign Ministry and uh, uh, the uh, the Soviet. Uh, Communist Party as well. But what they're really concerned about is China. They're concerned that the People's Republic of China is on the verge of acquiring a nuclear weapon. Uh, neither one really has the stomach to do anything about it militarily. And so the next best option is to essentially uh, you know, paint this forthcoming Chinese nuclear test in the most unflattering light possible. And so when China does test and the Limited Test Ban Treaty is in force, right? They test in the atmosphere, and Mao and Zhou Enlai, the Chinese Foreign Minister, they they really crow. This is, you know, for, you know according to them, not just a, an achievement of uh, China or you know the Chinese people, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, but of non-white peoples and Asian peoples in particular, uh, everywhere. Uh, you know, very much presented in this kind of civilizational, uh, us versus them way. And, you know, there's a politics to that. They, they know India is not going to be happy about it. And so they are sort of reaching out to them in this common, non-aligned language of the Afro-Asian movement. Uh, I think this is true for, for states, uh, in Africa, throughout Asia as well, uh, to try to maybe tamp down on some criticism. And in essence, the limited test man treaty, you know, what well, my book argues is it's kind of a, a counter propaganda move. And, you know, you see documents from the State Department saying we need this kind of we need to hold the line. And if we hold this line uh, against a forthcoming Chinese atmospheric test with the Soviet Union, with our allies and with non-aligned and neutral parties around the world. We will we will be able and keep in mind, this is a period where the United States does not recognize the People's Republic of China. It is actively uh, seeking to impede their uh, joining the United Nations, let alone the United Nations Security Council. And so, you know, I really see this as kind of like the origins of the notion of a rogue of of a rogue state and the limited test ban treaty as, you know, essentially setting forth the conditions by which global states, uh, statesmanship will be judged that if you, uh, test in the atmosphere, underwater and outer space, you are in, in essence, I mean, it's a, it's almost kind of criminal language, right? You are this sort of, uh, this rogue actor, you're untrustworthy. Um, whereas if you are holding this line, if you are sort of holding others to account either rhetorically or you know one imagines through violent means you're acting as a responsible steward of the global environment right because the justification for this internationally as well as domestically is nuclear fallout from these atmospheric tests um was a threat particularly to young children and expectant mothers
0: so how is okay? So the, the Chinese do wind up at, you know as we've as we've mentioned successfully detonating atomic device in, in October nineteen sixty four. Um, I didn't know that it was on the same day that Khrushchev is is ousted as the leader of the Soviet Union. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, also, um, the day of a British parliamentary election. Oh, okay. So this is when labor uh, comes to comes to power in that election as well, right? Or yep, yes, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. So it's like
1: a lot, a lot shifts on that day. That's that's yeah. a, you know, I wouldn't call it. A, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't call it a hinge
0: moment, but it definitely redirects the course of of non proliferation diplomacy. Yeah, that's fascinating. So how does the actual successful detonation of an atomic device combined with some of these other developments uh, that we just mentioned? How does that set the stage along with the successful conclusion of the Moscow treaty to create a broader and more expansive non-proliferation treaty.
1: Yeah. So there's, you know, the Moscow treaty, I would argue for the United States, certainly. And I think for the Soviet union as well, from what I can tell from the Russian language documents was, was never seen in isolation. Uh, McNamara was very interested in a non-proliferation treaty, because, you know, clearly a limited test ban treaty had had gaps, right? It's in it's in the name limited, uh, sometimes referred to as the partial test ban treaty. It doesn't cover underground testing. And so, you know, first of all, this is a pretty big loophole for the United States and the Soviet Union, who are more than capable of testing underground. And in fact, I think they end up conducting more underground tests than they had, like they, they tested a higher rate than they had previously. So there's a certain amount of um, Uh, you know, kind of, uh, have your cake and eat it too, uh, for, uh, for the superpowers. Uh, but as they're, they're kind of, you know, they're working it through the the bureaucracy, the state department, the defense department, thinking through all the different implications, the the first, second, and third order effects of a non treaty. McNamara basically says, look, like the acquisition of five small Hiroshima style bombs by a new state, let's say, the People's Republic of China is far more worrisome than the acquisition of 500 more thermonuclear weapons by the Soviet Union. Um, It's kind of the inverse of the Kenneth Waltz argument. Uh, If you've ever read, uh, you know, his sort of more is better uh, about the virtues of nuclear proliferation. You know, it's a very proliferation pessimist, like, it kind of like the original proliferation pessimist view, and he sees the advantages of again finding a way to nip new nuclear weapon states in the bud as being probably the the absolute best thing for American national security. And this is national security, I think, construed broadly, not the defense of the continental United States or even uh, you know overseas territories plus Hawaii and, and Alaska. This is national security in the American, quote unquote, leadership mode.
0: So how how at the same time does the the escalating uh, American involvement in Vietnam sort of impacting these negotiations and, and Washington's thinking about trying to create a, a nonproliferation regime as well? Because we haven't we haven't talked about the Vietnam dimension um, yet.
1: Yes. And so there, there's a couple of a couple of different threads that I would tease out. The first, as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways that the United States tries to inhibit uh, the appearance of new nuclear weapon states is by setting a good example, right? And so McNamara, when he comes in as Secretary of Defense, he and his whiz kids, they they are not very impressed with the state of nuclear planning in uh, the Defense Department and uh, Strategic Command in particular, which is a whole nother story that... Uh, you know, we, we need another hour long interview to really get into. But one of the things that he tries to, to do is to reintroduce these humanitarian uh, uh, concerns and criteria, right? So if we go back to the International Committee of the Red Cross, you know, they are of two minds following Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because, you know, they have a broad portfolio, they're trying to revise the Geneva Conventions to take, you know, because they were basically torn up, in many ways during the second world war, especially the treatment of prisoners of war. Uh, but then also how do you deal with the kind of crimes against humanity and genocide, which the Geneva conventions are not really suited to, to stamp out or to, to prevent. And so, you know, they end up taking this middle position where they don't wanna piss off the United States and its allies. So they don't, they don't support say the Grameco plan of just like, we need to illegalize these things as evil in, in and of themselves but instead apply humanitarian qualifications to them, right? To make them subject to, uh, the laws of war, uh, you know, uh, juice and bellow juice ad bellum, uh, you know, things like humanity, discrimination, proportionality, which would really make it difficult to target cities, right? This is, this is a thing that nobody really likes, but everybody has a hard time getting around that. If you have a thermonuclear exchange, You know, not that you want to, but for purposes of maintaining deterrence, cities are going to get hit, right? Because that's where the industries are, that's where uh, the command authorities are, and uh, McNamara kind of comes in, and without actually changing a lot about U.S. you know sort of nuclear doctrine, uh, changes a lot in the declaratory policy, sort of how he talks about nuclear doctrine, and that gives us in time uh, what comes to be called flexible response. So my book makes the argument flexible response is it, it doesn't actually tell us a lot about Central Europe. Uh, the United States more or less maintains a kind of, you know, massive retaliation, pretty pretty uh, expedient recourse to tactical nuclear weapons up through that escalatory ladder because they just, you know, the, the Red Army would otherwise just roll, roll over them, uh, such as, is you know, their conventional superiority, but elsewhere, uh, particularly in, uh, Southeast Asia, flexible response provides and has kind of two upshots. The first of which is that it humanizes the U S nuclear deterrent, uh, by introducing things like, okay, we're going to go after military targets. We're going to avoid hitting cities. Uh, and, and, and the, 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 the sort of the, kind of brilliant thing about it is when you say, you know, this is what not just our nuclear posture should be, but what everyone's nuclear posture should be. Right. Counterforce is way more expensive, far more difficult to achieve than count- what they, you know, very, um, cynically and clinically they call counter value, value meaning like civilians. And, for you know the french in particular are like oh well that's great for you with you know the united us economy that's still 40% of of global gdp uh for us that's not really achievable so McNamara kind of very slyly by introducing uh flexible also known as graduated response is kind of prices people out of the of the out of the proliferation business or tries right um by setting this declaratory um example what it also do does however you know as uh the kennedy and johnson administration try to convince uh allies and partners around the world not just in western europe but also in southeast asia and in east asia that they will come to their defense even if they are threatened by you know massive conventional forces or nuclear forces is is they start uh, speaking much more freely about using tactical nuclear weapons outside of europe and so they bring it up with the iranians they bring it up with the indians they're t- they're discussing uh, you know, placing atom bombs on a sort of mothballed carrier in the Indian Ocean in the event of another Sino-Indian war so that Indian uh, fighter bombers can pick the atom bombs up as a kind of like half in half out nuclear deterrent. Uh, and, and so flexible response, it sort of uh, it both lowers the bar for the use of nuclear weapons. It provides this kind of humanitarian gloss to them. But it also serves to justify or at least make far more conceivable American military uh, intervention abroad. Uh, and so that that's, you know, part of how Vietnam comes into the story. The, the second way that Vietnam comes into the story is, you know, the Non-Proliferation Treaty following uh, the opening for signature of the Moscow Treaty in August uh, 1963. You know, there, there's initially a lot of progress. Khrushchev is, is very interested Uh, For the Soviets, anything that would further bind the Germans' hands and keep them away from nuclear weapons is a good thing. The problem is, like with the Indians, the Americans are talking about, hey, is there a way that we can provide NATO and NATO members with greater control over nuclear weapons, right, that we can sort of bring uh, our Western European allies and partners, you know, Canada as well, but especially the West Germans into the nuclear enterprise so they have greater confidence that we will, um, you know, come to their nuclear defense, even if it means that we make ourselves vulnerable to a Soviet strike on, on the continental United States, right? This is the kind of great dilemma that Washington faces at the time. And Khrushchev originally is like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And uh, his, the Eastern Europeans, uh, you know, have to pull him back, basically. The, the, the Polish uh, prime minister, uh, also um, uh, the East German government, see this sort of NATO nuclear force for what it is, at least from the German perspective, that it's really about political leverage, that it's going to provide uh, Adenauer um, and then Erhard, Ludwig Erhard, his successor as chancellor, and eventually really Brandt, with capital that they can use in order to more effectively pursue their dream of a reunified Germany. Right. And potentially a reunified Germany that remained in the Western alliance. So Khrushchev gets pulled back from the from the brink. Uh, he's deposed uh, uh, just as China enters the ranks of the nuclear armed. And it's slowly uh, in Geneva where the 18 nation committee on disarmament uh, 18. So there's five capitalist, uh, five communists and eight neutral and non-aligned states negotiating nuclear arms control treaties foremost among them, the non-proliferation treaty. And you start to get this momentum building across 1965, 1966, except for the Europeanists, those who believe Europe is the cockpit of world affairs. That's where, you know, going back to Atchison, the United, you know, Marshall and Atchison where the United States, you know, should be drawing the line and committing the majority of its military, but also diplomatic resources and, and they just, they don't like the non-proliferation treaty because it would rule out this NATO multilateral force, which they think is absolutely essential, essential lest the Germans go the direction of the French and start distancing themselves from the Atlantic community over which the United States pres- provo- uh, presides. And so what eventually tips the balance is the Vietnam War. Not necessarily trying to wage and win the Vietnam War, but the fact that, LBJ, the consummate political animal, is looking at the November 1966 midterm elections, and he's getting these memos from his politicos, Bill Moyers, uh, foremost among them, saying, look, you know, the war is a problem with our base, and one way in which we can convince our base, and in particular suburban women, which are going to be absolutely key to your great society— which relies on democratic Congress people, is to convince them that you are a nuclear peacemaker. It worked for Kennedy with the limited test ban treaty in 63, and it can work for you too. You just need to stop listening to these Europeanists and, you know, George Ball in particular in the state department who love the MLF and hate the NPT and, and Johnson, and that's what happens. Johnson, you know, you know, the memos are, it's very explicit. It's like, find a solution to this problem. And it's submitted a day after the final memo from Moyers arise. Uh, and Moyers tells them you should be on the side of the angels, right? And the side of the angels was with, uh, the proponents, these sort of what I, who I term the, the nuclear guardians or the nuclear globalists in the arms control and disarmament agency led by Bill Foster and, uh, uh, LBJ, finally, you know, he's been wishy-washy. He, 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 makes, a, he makes a decision. He goes with the MPT, shelves the MLF, um, breaks it to the Germans, and finally moves on. And that unlocks, finally, this U.S.-Soviet consensus at the heart of the treaty.
0: So, okay. So that's, that's really fascinating. So really this domestic political consideration, really pushing LBJ to come out firmly for the NPT, finally sort of killing off the MLF, a whole different story about the development of that, um, that we would need a lot of time to unpack. But what, what really gets the NPT? We're now, you know, sort of moving to the end of the Johnson presidency, uh, you know, and then going into the Nixon one, what really gets the NPT over the line, you know what? What? Do, what do you find that really solidifies this as a as the overarching framework for nonproliferation?
1: Yeah, so it, it's one of those cases where it's really the the, the sequence is, is really important, and I would say it's not just like getting it over the line, but there's this window, and it's closing very quickly. Partly this is because new nuclear weapon powers are emerging: China in '64, Israel. Probably has, if not a weaponizable, then you know, sort of a fledgling, uh, basic nuclear capability in 1967. Uh, India would test in 1974, and probably could have gone sooner than that. Uh, so the window's closing. Uh, you know, you have conflicts, so the Six Day War, which really br- brings a spotlight on how these territorial conflicts and nuclear proliferation could be a very combustible mix. Um, that the superpowers would very much struggle to to keep control over. Uh, But I I think this window also means that neutral and non-aligned states end up having, and also U.S. allies, end up having a lot more say over the exact form a non-proliferation treaty takes than would have otherwise been the case, right? And so if you want to run the counterfactual, If uh, if Kennedy and Khrushchev had managed to agree on a nonproliferation treaty in in 1963, and then after Kennedy's assassination, uh, Khrushchev and and Johnson, I think you get what are the first two articles in the nonproliferation treaty? That's what spells out nonproliferation, right? You cannot acquire nor can you transfer these nuclear weapons. There's more wording than that. It's a legal document, but that's kind of what it boils down to. The other articles that find their way into the treaty, what? Experts on the non-proliferation treaty and global nuclear politics, uh, called the grand bargain would not have been in there otherwise. And so those are added at the insistence of these neutral and non-aligned states. Many of them sort of middle powers, the regional powers, you know, especially India, uh, Brazil to a slightly lesser extent, you know, they, they see, you know, this is a real possibility for them, Right. And it's kind of something new under the sun to say, oh, certain states shouldn't be able to have the most powerful weapon that's ever existed. Like that kind of happened with battleships, uh, with the Washington, um, the Washington Treaty, right? But like this is kind of going beyond that. Uh, it's creating a two-tier international hierarchy that is sanctified by the UN Charter, right? Uh, so India and Brazil, there, they, they, especially India, goes from being very supportive to Increasingly in opposition, and, and part of that's what's happening with China, uh, but part of that is just the Jawaharlal Nehruvian, you know, ideas of non-alignment and you know, nuclear self-denial are just starting to to dissipate internally for domestic reasons too. Uh, so this window from kind of sixty-six to sixty-eight is striking for for a couple of reasons. So the neutrals and non-aligned introduce what become Articles three, four, five, six and seven. So, uh, you know, the third one is negotiated still primarily between the superpowers, but with a lot of input from Western Europe, because the uh, European atomic energy community, also known as Euratom, has existing safeguards and verification. And so that gives them leverage over determining the type of verification that would be put in place really kind of gets you to a lowest common denominator. Uh, Big problems down the road with countries like North Korea and Iran and Iraq. Uh, But Japan as well, who's saying, hey, if you're if your European allies are getting the sweet deal, we want that sweet deal, too. We want to sell nuclear reactors to the to the developing world. At the same time, the Latin American states—you know—it's a process that begins in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it's really taken over by the Mexican Foreign Ministry and uh, the Deputy Foreign Minister Alfonso Garcia Robles, in particular. They negotiate this nuclear uh, nuclear weapon free zone in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, finalized in February of 1967. The U.S. is supportive. It sets some great precedents from. Washington's points of view for the NPT. This includes the involvement of the International Atomic Energy Agency, but also some kind of questionable languages language about what is a nuclear explosive. Can you distinguish between a nuclear explosive that you might use for civil purposes, like blasting a new harbor, from a nuclear weapon? The superpowers say no. Uh, signatories of Latin American to the Treaty of Tlatelolco say yes. And so that creates problems as well. But this window allows the neutral and non-aligned states uh, and also those uh, who see, uh, who are kind of positioning themselves for market share in this global nuclear market uh, to, to, to influence the treaties in ways that would kind of have three effects. The first is to ensure that countries could still Uh, establish a closed fuel cycle, uh, which means that even if you sign up to the treaty, you can go right up to the brink of an independent nuclear arsenal. And this is essentially what Japan has today, right? Um, Secondly, that there will be uh, support for nuclear weapon-free zones around the world and a lot of language that seeks to uh, create equity in a future future global nuclear order and then last but not least uh an article that would specify an obligation on the part of nuclear weapon states to negotiate in good faith uh for the reduction and eventual elimination of nuclear weapons in the context of general complete disarmament this this is probably the most let's not say controversial but definitely the the article in the treaty that probably garners the most interest and scrutiny when uh, treaty signatories meet every five years in New York.
0: So, as we're coming to the the end of our conversation, I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about what are some of the lessons. I know historians sometimes can be reticent about doing this, but um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the lessons from. You know this the period that you're exploring in the book and these efforts at at nuclear non-proliferation um, some of the lessons that policymakers and and those of us viewing these issues from uh, the present can try and um, learn um, as nuclear proliferation becomes or has been in recent years another really important issue in global politics. How are some of the things that you explored in this book? Can any of that really be mapped out onto the present?
1: I I hope so. I, I think I am somebody who believes not necessarily in the lessons of the past, but sometimes going back to this, going back to the sources. Right, that's what we as humanists do. It, it it can actually it can sort of inspire creative thinking. It can maybe help you, get you out of the path dependency that often comes along with institutions and things like treaties. Uh, just. I think peering back, you know, I I think one of the sections I'm most proud of in this book is the the chapter on the Irish Resolution, and understanding what like what was the original motivation, what was the worldview, the vision of the future that Frank Aiken had, and for Frank Aiken, the guiding light was to establish and reinforce the the United Nations and the United Nations Charter right as the seed for world government, and we've lost that. I think, vision entirely, uh, at least when it comes to the nuclear Nonproliferation treaty. Uh, I think as well, you can see some of the unintended consequences. So one of the most interesting documents that I came across was in the French foreign ministry archives. And, you know, the non-proliferation treaty, there's, there are a lot of kind of concurrent efforts that go along with it. But one of the questions they're trying to resolve is security assurances. So if you have states, I mean, it's quite commonsensical. If you have states, uh, uh, pledging to do without the most powerful weapon, deterrent weapon at that, and you know, ever ever made, uh, ever invented, it seems logical that you would offer them something in exchange for their security. And for various reasons, not least of which the Vietnam War, because the United States does not want to unilaterally rule out the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Southeast Asia, the Pentagon refuses to sign up to a negative security assurance. This promise that if you do without nuclear weapons, we will not target you. You will not be a target of our nuclear arsenal. Um, now, the French, they're looking at what is a, a you know ultimately the compromise, which is a security assurance through the UN Security Council. And it's, at the end of the day, kind of a pretty watered down document. There, there's nothing that requires Uh, nuclear armed permanent members of the UN Security Council to come to the assistance of a state threatened by nuclear weapons or the victim of nuclear violence. But what the French say is this non-binding resolution uh, for whatever worth it has, they don't think it's worth much more than the paper it's printed on. It establishes certain perverse norms in international society that could have uh, dire consequences. The first of these is, uh, they use the word hierarchicizing. It's maybe, you know, French doesn't translate creating a hierarchy uh, between uh, the use of nuclear violence and conventional violence, right? And so you can see seeds of, say, uh, the Bush administration's Bush doctrine based on opposing the spread of weapons of mass destruction, right, as a sort of, in many ways, warrant for exceeding. Uh, the UN Security Council when necessary, right, in the name of um, uh, maintaining nuclear peace and avoiding proliferation. Uh, The other thing that they note is it creates this kind of two-class society of the nuclear club and the rest of humanity, uh, which is problematic if the UN charter at least ostensibly establishes a level, level playing field for all sovereign states. And then lastly, they note that this document by noting not just the use of nuclear weapons, but the threatened use of nuclear weapons, which is kind of just another way to say nuclear deterrence, right, um, establishes a maybe a slippery slope to the justification of preventive war. Right. And so this is in April of 1968. They write out this sort of like legal uh, I suppose uh, you know, kind of like legal study of of, of the treaty and these this uh, security assurances package, and they more or less call the Iraq War like forty years before it happens, um, right? That that even though this Security Council treaty or sorry, uh, Security Council resolution re- really isn't cited that much afterwards, it nonetheless speaks to this growing normalization and criminalization of of nuclear science technology in the international system one that would make it easy for a state like the united states a permanent member of the u.n security council to justify preventive war in its name but even a state like israel to conduct preventive strikes against syrian or iraqi nuclear facilities because of this same norm that this threat of nuclear weapons because it is seen as so absolute and ultimate uh, can also have the you know have the, the kind of very dangerous um, I, I suppose just create, a, uh, create grounds right for doing what is otherwise prohibited by the UN Charter, which is wars of aggression, wars of choice.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll have to leave it there. So I just want to say thanks again, John, for coming on the podcast. I thought we had a great conversation. The book is The Nuclear Club, How America and the World Police the Atom from Hiroshima to Vietnam. It's been published by Stanford University Press, and it is out now. So you can pick up your copy and you absolutely should do so. So thanks, John, again for for coming on. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks, Grant.